1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor. From Barclays, we have Tammy Hargreaves, who is head of contactless payments at BarclayCard. And from the US, Alistair Gray has been in conversation with Moody's credit rating agency about US bank ratings. This week, we'll be looking at the very fast rise of contactless payments in the UK Also at Unicredit, Italy's biggest bank and the prospects for a change of senior management there. And finally, that story of the US credit rating agencies and how they are viewing the risks in the US banking system. First, though, to the change in the habits of UK consumers, the very quick rise in the popularity of contactless payments. Tammy Hargreaves, thank you very much for joining us. How would you summarise what's been happening and why?
2: So, I think in the UK market, we've been continuing to see fantastic growth in contactless over recent years. And in the last year alone, we've seen a doubling overall in the spend by UK consumers, which has been phenomenal. It's really been based on a number of key factors. I think there's an increase in the contactless limit, which we saw in September last year, from 20 to £30. Pounds. And that really opened up even more opportunity for consumers to spend easily and conveniently wherever they chose. And so we've really seen a real growth in that space. Secondly, there's been just more places to spend. So as more and more retailers and merchants adopt and roll out contactless, it increases the opportunity for where customers choose to spend contactlessly. I think in addition to that, I think there's just been a growing awareness for consumers around the ease and convenience that contactless payments offers them whether that's on a contactless payment card, um, a wearable device, or more recently, mobile payments. Both the rollout of our Android contactless mobile in January saw a significant growth in the over 65s of 10% of our base, already adopting in just a short time, and also the rollout of Apple Pay more recently.
1: One question I wanted to ask you was how the UK compares in this regard with other countries around the world. I sense that it's towards the vanguard.
2: Yeah, so the UK is being viewed globally now as one of the leaders in contactless adoption, and we are certainly held up as a fantastic use case. I think one of the unique differences in the UK market from a contactless point of view was the arrival of transport for London and the rollout across transit. And that is really being seen as a key catalyst for adoption in the UK and certainly gets showcased around the world. You know, I often speak in a number of events where there's a lot of interest globally around just how much British consumers have really adopted and taken contactless to their hearts.
1: Using contactless cards instead of Oyster cards on tubes and buses and so on.
2: Absolutely. The growth has been phenomenal in terms of the adoption of Transport for London contactless journeys. We've seen now over 300 million journeys made contactlessly since the rollout in September 2014. To
1: what extent is this just replacing other forms of payment though, either debit cards, credit cards, or even cash? I mean, I think there was some evidence saying that cash withdrawals from ATMs had been increasing as well.
2: I think we've long believed that one of the great benefits of contactless is cash displacement, So we are continuing to see lots of smaller transactions and smaller amounts that would traditionally have been cash transactions now happening as contactless transactions and small micro transactions. That's been a growing shift over recent years um, and one that we really welcome because, again, we think there's lots of value in that cash displacement both to the consumer but also to the retailers in terms of handling cash.
1: I guess you could say it's a more safe payment method than using cash both for retailers and as you say for customers are there any downside risks to this rapid growth is there any suggestion that people might be overspending i know personally if i've got a limited amount of cash i tend to spend less than if i'm using my card
2: no none whatsoever and certainly that's not something we've ever encountered what we find is actually you know it is safer than cash Uh, and that's again been a very strong message for us to share with our consumers over recent years and we've continued to reinforce that message with repeated press coverage over years to increase confidence around safety and security, and the banks offer a no-quibble guarantee.
1: Let me just bring Martin in quickly on that point.
3: Well, it's a broader point, really. I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on when we might move to a cashless society.
2: (laughs) Uh, I think this is an interesting debate that continues to roll I think cash will be around for some time yet. I think we will continue to see cash diminish, however, but I think it will be around for some time yet.
1: So we can't pin you down to a date yet, much as I guess we can't pin ourselves down to uh, how long the FT newspaper will be around, hopefully for a very long time. And a final point from Martin?
3: Well, just to ask whether contactless cards aren't just an interim stage before you get to the
1: full smartphone
3: capability like the Apple Pay, like Android Pay, eventually, in five years' time, won't everybody be paying for pretty much everything through their mobile devices?
2: I think that capability is already here today for those customers who have the smartphones that are, enable high value. and Many of our retailers are already accepting high value payments via mobile. So I think that's a fantastic arrival and evolution. I do think we'll see continued growth and shift towards new ways to pay, You know, whether that's mobile or other devices, I think increasingly we'll see interesting innovations in wearables as well, where the internet of things could play a part and really start to bring new and exciting alternatives that customers can personalise and make very, very you know simple for how they choose to live their lives. But I do believe that there needs to remain a choice for consumers and some customers will prefer to use the more traditional methods for some time.
1: Very good. Tammy Hargreaves, thank you very much for joining us. Let's move on to our second topic for the day. Martin, you've been looking at Unicredit, the Italian bank, which has been through the mill, rather, over the past few months and and arguably the past few years. There are growing suggestions that the chief executive may be replaced
3: nothing really suggestive about it, Patrick. It's happening. The board of Unicredit, Italy's biggest bank by assets and the only Italian bank to be categorised by regulators as globally systemically important, is meeting on Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, to confirm the appointment of headhunters to find a replacement for Federico Gizzoni, the chief executive of Unicredit, which is one of the worst performing bank stocks in Europe. its shares are down 40% this year against a 20-25% fall in the index. And the trigger for this decision has been the pretty catastrophic move by Unicredit to be the sole underwriter on a, a share issue by one of its smaller rivals, Banca Vicenza, which they found that they were going to be stuck with all those shares because there was no demand from investors. So that was a $1.5 billion Euro rights issue that they found themselves on the hook for. And that would have meant that Unicredit basically took over Vicenza and added all of their assets to its balance sheet. And because Vicenza's in a pretty dire state, which is why it's having to do this rights issue, that would have dragged Unicredit below its minimum capital requirements. So the board decided that this decision, which uh, Federico Gizzoni had played a role in, was putting the bank in danger, essentially. And for that reason, they've decided to change it. Now, I am hearing that Gizzoni may not leave Unicredits entirely. There is a faction on the board that would like him to step up to chairman. Now, putting my Anglo-Saxon FT hat on, I would be disapproving of this. And I think there'd be a lot of investors who would be pretty heavily disapproving of such a move. But it's definitely been mooted. The board have definitely had this in mind and have talked to potential chief executive candidates to replace him as chief executive about the possibility that he would step up to chairman. And he's widely seen as a nice guy. It's just that he hasn't taken the tough decisions. I mean, this is the bank with one of the lowest capital ratios in the sector. It's got one of the highest non-performing loan books um, in terms of bad loans, about 80 billion euros, a very high NPL ratio for a large global bank. And it's got a pretty incoherent strategy. It's got operations in Germany, in Central Eastern Europe, in Austria. It hasn't really restructured it domestically in Italy. There's a lot of work to be done. The board is divided. There are factions on the board between the foundations. There's Abu Dhabi a Sovereign Wealth Fund that has a representative on the board and has a stake in it. It's Libya, the Libyan government, has a stake and that's pretty much a vacant seat on the board because Libya doesn't really have a government. So it's a really tricky situation, but I think that they are replacing the chief executive, which could be the first step towards turning things around.
1: Very good. Well, we'll watch that very closely, particularly the potential governance concerns around a potential move to Gemini. Let's move on to the third and final topic for today, a look at the US banks as seen through the prism of the credit rating agencies. Alistair Gray has been looking at this topic.
4: It's been a few weeks now since the big U.S. investment banks posted quarterly earnings, but Wall Street's still reeling from them. Profits and sales were under pressure across the sector. Earnings at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley plunged by more than half. Joining me now to discuss the wider implications of this is Peter Nerby from the credit ratings agency Moody's. Peter, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. And uh, you've been busy analyzing all these these numbers. Uh, Were they as bad as they first appeared?
5: Well, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. The first quarter is usually the strongest quarter of the year for these companies. And as you pointed out, several firms reported very sharp year-over-year declines in their profitability, and several firms also reported single-digit ROEs. So as you pointed out, the market reacted to that, the stock market and the bond market reacted to that. But what's happened in the past when firms have earnings challenges like this, they usually try and dial up risk somehow. We think that's going to be very difficult to do given the new regulatory architecture on the firms, and that's sort of bondholder friendly.
4: Interesting. Well, um, I mean, the executives point out that you know, this is a cyclical business. We shouldn't necessarily be surprised that some quarters are worse than others. To what extent do you think that's right? And to what extent is this actually showing some underlying problem with the investment banks?
5: Well, there are clearly structural elements to these revenue declines that uh, we can see here. And it's interesting when you pose it as, is there a problem here? It may depend on who you're talking about. For the shareholders or the bondholders. We don't think there's a problem for the bondholder here, but the sharers, they're not earning the return on equity that they need, even in what
4: is typically the strongest quarter of
5: the year for them.
4: So is there a big divergence of uh, interest between the, the shareholders and the bondholders? I mean, are, are, are the bondholders actually welcoming uh, this tougher regulation that's hurting the interests of the, the equity holders?
5: I think that... The biggest beneficiary of the regulation is the bondholder, and they want firms to be able to earn their cost of capital over the long run, but all the incremental leverage and liquidity restrictions that have been put on the firms have effectively shut off a lever they used to have, which was to dial up risk to generate more return. That's much more difficult to do now.
4: And so you took a credit rating action against the banks back in 2012. Are these pressures enough for you to do any further any further reductions?
5: No, we have, we have stable outlooks on all the firms now. We think that we reflected much of these pressures in the ratings or much of these the effect of this regulation in the ratings back then. So we have stable outlooks on the ratings today.
4: Is there a point at which, though, the, the regulation becomes um, a negative even for the, the bondholders?
5: Sure, sure. Because at some companies, we rate companies as going concerns. And they have capital and liquidity. That's good. But they also need to generate capital. So we want them to earn a sustainable return over time. And if, if the managers who work for the shareholders, if they are not achieving their targets, they're gonna, they have to do something. They have to restructure and we talk a little bit about in the report and you can see that that's happening. They're starting to shrink again.
4: And so there has been a lot of cost cutting and plans for further expense reduction. Is there a danger that that will start to um, undermine the businesses, do you think?
5: That's, I think, what the managers were referring to in your first question, which is it's very challenging to figure out sometimes what's a structural decline and what's a cyclical decline. And you risk, when you think about Maybe the announcement that Morgan Stanley made is one of the most visible, right? They said we're going to take fixed income RWA down by a third, and we're getting rid of something like 25% of their staff. You're taking the risk that that market does rebound, but that risk is really uh, a shareholder risk in terms of foregone earnings. For the bondholder, that's not a big deal. And how confident are you that things will improve? It's very hard to say when they will improve, but we think that there is a long-term demand from issuers and investors for liquidity provision, which is what this business model is all about. Whether you're underwriting bonds or whether you're trading bonds, you're providing liquidity to investors. And when volatility rises, demand for risk transfer rises and volumes can recover. So we believe that there's a viable business model for global investment banks, but there may be a few too many of them right now.
4: So for now, bondholders are, are, are relatively sanguine, are they? Uh, how, how, yeah. If the, the pressure continues uh, for more, more into the second half of the year, perhaps uh, into next year, then right. when does it start to become a real worry for um, debt holders? What we would probably focus
5: on then would be we would focus very closely on the capital and liquidity positions of the firm. So if the earnings are declining, if you're maintaining your capital and you're maintaining your liquidity, broadly speaking, you're protecting the bondholder. So that's what we're, we're, we're going to be paying attention to and how fast firms can re-engineer. It's getting harder to do it. So the task is getting more difficult, but right now we're, we're pretty ambivalent for the bondholder.
4: Well, and it's been, it's been difficult in Europe as well. I mean, aren't there just too many investment banks?
5: That's a great question. I don't know the exact answer to that question. I would simply say that there doesn't seem to be uh, an ability for everybody to consistently earn their cost of capital, which may suggest that money will be taken, that shareholders will, will, will vote with their feet
4: ultimately. And Goldman Sachs now offering savings accounts, is that the answer?
5: Well, you know, it's interesting. I would say that the, we, we talked a little bit about one lever you can pull, which is compensation. Another lever you can pull is diversification. And that's that's a longer-term lever to pull. But if you look at the results of the five U.S. firms, everybody was down, but the most diversified firms were down the least. So Morgan and Goldman is, Morgan Stanley and Goldman is more of the pure plays were down more than the three U.S. Universal Banks, BAC, City and JP
4: chinks of light amid the gloom well uh, peter nerby thanks very much for coming in thank you for having me that's it for this week all that's left for me to do
1: is to thank martin here in the studio tammy hargreaves from barclay card and also alistair gray and his guest in new york remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking banking weekly was produced by fiona simon and amy keen until next week goodbye